This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, once again, we are here at the DLR Cast with my good friend, as always, Darren Paltrowitz. And Darren, just one question for you. How many times have you said to yourself, I feel like a yo-yo, I've been here too long? <laughs> uh, every day, every day. I can't, there's... That kind of lyric, the how many times have you blah, 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 that's on a few different Van Halen albums and Dave albums. Where's that one from? That is one. That is on uh, Eat Em and Smile. Yeah. Eat Em and Smile. And um, not Bump and Grind. Now I'm forgetting the name of the song. However, if you caught that lyric before we mentioned what song, what album it was from, then you've come to the right place to get your David Lee Roth and Van Halen fix. So thank you for downloading and streaming right up at the top. And Darren, it's great to see you again. And we've got a hell of a fun episode here. Yeah. Now, hey, I got a diatribe right here. There's um, a little ain't enough. Like he asks a rhetorical question. There's like two songs on a different kind of truth where he asks a rhetorical question. There's a lot of rhetorical questions. Oh, yeah. Like, that's how you said that one. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or 2000s. I ask that question to uh, myself a lot. It's rhetorical. It's metaphorical. It's an allegory. And it's, yeah, yeah I can relate to a lot of Dave's lyrics. So, yeah. But all right. Well, we've got an interview coming up with Tom Bajor, author of the killer new book, Nothing But a Good Time, or I should say you've got an interview with him and it's awesome royal we the royal yes it's awesome but first a couple things in the news van halen related well one van halen related and then dave i was thinking about something we'll get to in a minute but of course if you're listening to this, the odds are probably very good that you did not watch the Grammys because (laughs) the ratings are sinking like a stone every year why because the because one I don't think most people give a shit anymore because music has just been so fragmented and there's really nothing that as big as Cardi B is or as big as Beyonce is, most people can't name a song. Right. But this week it got in this uh, this week. It got into the news because of once again, the Grammys were completely ham handed in in handling uh, uh, handling something in the in the broadcast. And that is what a shit job they did. Basically uh, memorializing, I guess, Eddie Van Halen and 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 including him in the including him in the grant in the Grammy broadcast and Wolfgang had something to say about that too. And I guess the, the short story is what did he get? 17 seconds as part of the memorial uh, video or something. Um, And um, uh, yeah, there was a short clip of Eddie performing eruption was played. uh, You know, well, it was very short. It was, it was, it was, um, it was, uh, you know, a three hour show and Eddie died in October and here it is, the most impactful guitar player in rock and roll history, mm-hmm. and th- he gets a few seconds. And what's interesting, and you might know this, Darren, is Wolfgang's response and what we learned about that. If Did you hear about that news this was week? Was it that he himself was asked to do Eruption and he kind of turned it down? I don't know if there was more than that. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what he said. He said uh, they invite him to perform at the event, which is just there's another example of ham handedness. I mean, the fact that a bunch of people who probably only knew you really got me and jump stood around trying to plan this thing, being the producer going, wait, his son, 
his son should play his dad's most iconic guitar piece that anybody thought that would be a good idea. I mean, it's just, it, these are the same folks who probably thought it might have been a good idea to just let's do a tribute tour, a tribute concert. With, with, where let's, I'm sorry, not only the tributes, I get a tribute concert, but remember that rumor a couple months ago where it's like, um, you know, Wolfgang's going to take the place of Eddie on guitar. That stupid little rumor that shot up there for a minute. It's it's I just thought it was really ridiculous and somewhat disrespectful on the Grammys part about how this um, how this was all done at the at the broadcast. Yeah, I think that you need to take a step back, not not you specifically. The average person that uh, consumes entertainment needs to take a step back and realize that even if the Grammys governing organization calls itself a nonprofit it is entirely a business because you think about it. They're selling the TV rights to an award show. Um, In recent years, it died down, but there used to be an annual series of CDs of the nominees. And you think of uh, the Grammy Museum. You know, there's millions upon millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars going around for profit related to the Grammys. It is totally a business the way that ASCAP and BMI are businesses that call themselves nonprofits because mm-hmm. I think you only have to give away 5% of your your revenue, something like that, to, to maintain nonprofit status. It, it's really one of the shams of this country. Sorry to diatribe on this whole thing, but it's one of the shams of this country that you don't really have to be a charity to be registered as a charity. So you say that and you go, Van Halen won multiple Grammys, correct? Like, I remember they were at least nominated for, like, the Twister soundtrack and all that. They had to have won Grammys, yes? I would think. Okay, so sometimes you got to know as a business where your bread is buttered. And Van Halen has contributed so much to the music industry. So many people have jobs because of the tens of millions of albums that they sold beyond singles and all that that you have to go, hmm, maybe there wouldn't be this part of Warner Brothers had Van Halen not existed. So well, maybe let's be a little respectful well, here. Well, let's take it let's take it a different way as far as as far as impact and uh, this is a nice little segue what we'll, we'll get to what you the episode will get to in a bit and that's the interview you did with Tom Bajor, author of Nothing But a Good Time. Yeah. Van Halen and Eddie's and the, the band in Eruption was for just about every hair metal and hard rock band in the 80s. Was, when they first heard that, that was the equivalent to them of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Do you yeah. know how many freaking people inspired to start a band? Do you know how many freaking people it inspired to get better on guitar in, in, in not only um, – Southern California, but everywhere. So, so what Wolfgang was really disappointed with, and he mentions, and I don't know how you can you can be a fan and not be disappointed with this. Was that, and he wrote, put this on social media that uh, he was pretty disappointed. He said it was my understanding that there would be an in memoriam section where bits of songs were performed for legendary artists that passed. Yeah. I didn't realize they would only show pop for fifth. 15 seconds in the middle of four full performances for others other we had lost. Now, I'm not going to debate. I couldn't even tell you who those other artists were that were in the memoriam section. And I'm not going to debate that if there was somebody there who may have had a, such a, as big as an impact um, as Eddie did in their style of music as Eddie. Actually, I will debate that. Fuck it. I guarantee without even knowing him, I bet you I can't space it on who else died last year. But did anybody else have as big of an impact as Eddie? I'm not going to tell you that Adam Schlesinger from Founds and Wayne did, but I would put him on similar weight for under-tributed artists right there. Because if you think of how many hits 
that oh he, yeah absolutely and he Alan and Emerald, who co-wrote i love rock and roll and he did a lot of things for a lot of people sure but there was definitely an underrepresentation of some people who made a big big difference right. in things and eddie's the king of that i'm gonna say Adam Schlesinger, you know, prepare to get that hate, hate mail going right here. But if you think of Emmy-nominated, Oscar-nominated, well, here's and here, here's the deal. I that's a brain fart on my end. I forgot he died. He died very early. On. He died yeah. from COVID right yeah. when this happened. And I am a huge fan. Is I love Fountain of Wayne. I love all things power pop. So I totally get that. But as far as a level of impact and influence, right? I mean, so and and this is what and this again is why I totally get why Wolfgang was disappointed and and I'm glad he put this out there. He said what hurt the most was that he wasn't even mentioned when they talked about artists we lost in the beginning of the show. I mean and he and he goes on to say I think it's impossible to ignore the legacy my father left on the instrument, the world of rock and music in in general. There'll never be another innovator like him. And so, you know, what they the fact that they that they didn't I mean, I can't imagine that they they said, oh, well, uh, Wolfgang refused to play. So just, you know, we'll just do this. I I just think they're out of touch. I don't do you know what I mean? And and the Grammys have been out of touch for a long, long time. And and if I can get a triple the hate mail right now, uh, anybody who wants to get on the pulpit of Rock music is white people music and all that. Um, Eddie was Asian. Um, so there was a diversity hey. angle as well that they definitely missed out on because how much Asian representation do they have besides Bruno Mars being Hawaiian Filipino? So you missed out on the rock representation. You missed out on the ethnic representation and you missed out on the actual commercial success and influence that kept the lights on at Warner Brothers. How many Warner Brothers artists do you think made as much money for Warner Brothers as Van Halen did in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s and 2010s? It's like, yeah, the Doobie Brothers were huge, but the Doobie Brothers were over by the early 80s. Yeah. And you know what? It 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 the. It's interesting you mentioned that the Asian bit because I remember last fall uh, there was a bunch of headlines. Rock star Eddie Van Halen's Asian roots shocked the internet because people know that he immigrated from what Holland, but most people didn't know that his mother was Indonesian. And um, the week he died, NBC News had a big thing that Eddie Van. Uh, there was an article just among so many articles about Eddie, of course dying uh but eddie van halen endured a horrifying racist environment before becoming a rock legend and that wasn't because his dad was dutch uh that was because his mom was indonesian so i shoot yeah there might have been some ethnic uh ethnic uh what's the word i'm looking for some ethnic representation there but most people didn't even know that i'm i i Sure, I knew. I'd never even thought of it, right? I mean, you know, his his he uh, you know his he spent his childhood in the Netherlands, and his mom was Indonesian. It's just it's it's uh, pretty interesting. In fact, speaking to Dave, and I'm just as I looked at this article, um, uh, on and this is a reminder too of Dave on the on the Mark Maron's podcast. He brought up the fact just you know how painful the racism was for the Van, uh, Van Halen uh, for the Van Halen brothers 
Uh, it says in the 2019 interview, Roth described how poorly the Van Halen's parents were treated because of their mixed race, race relationship in the 1950s. It was a big deal. Those homeboys grew up in a horrifying racist environment to where they actually had to leave the country, Roth said in the podcast. He had that the brothers who often referred to as half-breed in the Netherlands still met difficult circumstances after immigrating to the U.S. He said then they came to the America and did not speak English as a first language in the early 60s. Wow, Roth said, told Marin. So that kind of spanking, that kind of stuff runs deep. And of course, wow, we're really going deep here. Roth gets all that because he dealt with anti-Semitism as a kid, yeah. right? And um, it's real interesting when you think of it because I, I don't remember that getting a lot of headlines. Dave's saying that, you know, out of the uh, Mark Marin interview a year before that. So, yeah, we're and it, it's. The whole getting back to the Grammys thing, it's just it's it was a damn shame. They had a great chance to uh, to do what I think they should have done. And they didn't do it. When you think of Cardi B, you know, she's she's going to be the scapegoat for lots and lots of things because people go, oh, that's not music. I'm not going to be one of those people that goes, oh, Cardi B. Nobody's going to be talking about her in 20 years. She didn't inspire anyone. That's not true. When I speak to a lot of younger people. And you ask them, you know, who their favorite artists are. They they do say artists like that. But some of the artists that they feature without naming names, we will not be talking about in two years. That was clearly a major label barter thing of, hey, we'll give you Bruno Mars if you give us blank. There's so much of that within the Grammys. And I'm going to have to be a repeating kind of person. You go, Van Halen brought in hundreds of millions of dollars to Warner Brothers it might have been Warner Brothers' fault for not really standing ground and going, ah, you kind of need to do this one. The roots of Warner Brothers, the lights would not be on if it weren't for Van Halen, the Chili Peppers, Madonna. There's like 10 artists ever that yeah. Warner would have gone out of business if it weren't for them. Yeah, I don't know about that because, I mean, they had a big legacy and a catalog, but you're right. I mean, they there was bands like that, particularly Van Halen, that the impact was so big and the sales were so big. You have to wonder. It's it's what could have been what, what would have what would have happened. Right. Well, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's just all it's a little bit. The whole Grammy thing is just mind boggling. But here's here's another thing. Switching gears for a bit um, as I think we covered Van Halen and and, and the Grammys uh, uh, pretty heavily there. But so this week, Paul Stanley's soul album for this band, Paul Soul Station, uh, the album, his album uh, Now and Then came out, where it's all pretty much famous soul covers. So like the spinners, I'll be around. There's a couple like three originals. There's two or three originals in there. One original is called uh, IOI, which sounds I, I was very impressed it, it's an homage but not a ripoff and it sounds like it kind of fits but here's what i was thinking of and that is dave missed an opportunity he could have been doing something like this and and i i think it would have been this so far it seems like it's very well received but paul had to kind of convince people or tell people through the years but especially leading up to this is that i grew up on this stuff for years he was saying how much he grew up with led Ze and i'm sure he did i know he did i'm not denying that he didn't but if, for the most part before this past year if you if you asked a kiss fan what Ed, you know a rock fan what paul's biggest influences were well he's been saying for years you remember seeing led zeppelin at the garden or he saw cream and you know all these other bands and mata hoople right and um uh, 
you know, Frampton with um, Humble Pie. I mean, so I was a little bit surprised to find out all the leading up to this, all his soul influences. With Dave, we've always known how deep his influences have run, right? Because I got to think it too. What if the Mambo Slammers were taken to an ultimately bigger conclusion, right? Where there was an album and he dipped into the soul and the blues and the R&B stuff. Um, I think it would have been really well received. It would have been really interesting from a creative standpoint to what he did. Uh, and I think it was possibly, it just reminded me, I was like, wow, this could have been something that this would have been been perfectly at home if Dave did something like this. Can I say, as a fellow self-loathing Kiss fan, can I say something not nice about Paul Stanley in this project, or or should I hold back on that? Hey, we work without a net here. I am a huge Kiss fan, but like any Kiss, like hardcore Kiss fans, they get as much much complaints as they do praise, it seems. Okay, so Paul Stanley's been doing a lot of media lately, and it's always... uh, I don't know if I should do the impression, but it's like my first concert was Otis Redding. Like, and he always says, like, I saw Otis Redding many times. He names all it's I saw Solomon Burke. He names all these people. But there's this clip I have to send you from 84. And I think it's with a German uh, station. And they, they're like, oh, what was your first concert? And he's like, I don't know. I don't remember. It's like, so either. <laughs> Either he was saying that back then because he didn't want to admit he was an R&B guy or he's just kind of created this whole legacy that all along he's been this R&B guy. I don't know which one it is, but Diamond Dave, when he talks about his we're doing five sets a night, 45 minutes a night and we're doing James Brown and we're doing this. Yeah, he was never ashamed of that. No, they were doing it. And uh, here I don't want to I do. I get I totally believe that Paul really grew up on this stuff. I think if you if you were a teenager in the late 60s, early 70s in such a melting pot as New York, the yeah. way radio was, you, there's no way you didn't hear Let's Stay Together. If you were a big yeah. I mean, back then you lived for the radio and things got on pop music that would never have gotten on that just don't get on pop radio today. Right. Yeah. So I totally get that. It was an influence. In fact, there's a great interview on songfacts.com where he, um, he shows how sh- shouted out loud, uh, the, the yes. call and response, the call and response is just like, uh, is, is just like sugar by honey punch by what the temptations of the four tops. And I heard that went, Oh my God, absolutely. It is. And, it reminds me too that for years Gene has always says that his bass parts that for Deuce and other songs he always heard horns. And if you really stop and listen to that, you go, "Oh yeah, I can I kind of dig that." So I have no doubt that they're very true to their roots. I think for most people that you know this stuff was influential to Paul. But for years we always heard about the hard rock stuff, and of course, especially with Gene, the Beatles. I mean, yeah. um, but getting back to Dave a bit, you know, he did the covers album Diamond Dave, which was just kind of a weird scattered mishmash, right? I mean, there's a Steve yeah. Miller cover on there, there's a Beatles cover, there's yeah. one or two originals. One of one of the song, one of the originals is um, uh, co-written with John Five, which I, I figured was. Uh, a leftover from the DLR band album, which John Five co-wrote just about every song on that. Yeah. And I just got to thinking that Dave could have, should have been doing something like this ages ago, especially if you listen to 
uh, and I listen to this regularly, as I've said before, because it never fails to be an instant mood enhancer. But on YouTube, there's Dave doing um, there's 50. It's called 50 Rides on the Love Train. Yes. So there's like a two hour video of Dave doing vocal warm ups, singing along to the OJ's Love Train, which is one of the greatest soul songs of all time. And of course, there's a condensed. If you're watching it, you see all the amazing dance moves that Dave. I mean, it's just fun to watch. But it's, you, it's fun to listen to. I mean, he's clearly warming up, but he he does things with a melody and does things differently. Where you're reminded a bit, it's like, yeah, this guy's this guy's voice could fit the blues and soulful stuff. And of course, we heard that in Van Halen with Ice Cream Man and other stuff. Yeah. Um, but I just think with Paul Stanley's record, the light bulb. slammers like that artistically it would have been really cool if he if he really kind of followed that to a bigger and seemingly more logical conclusion but instead uh we we got a bluegrass uh <laughs> set of songs from yeah so, hey look we know he follows his muse wherever the hell it goes if that's if that's with oil paints or uh, kilimanjaro or the you know uh the the amazon river who the fuck knows you know that's why we love him so much we we get the bluegrass we get the edm uh jump remix a couple, yes exactly a couple hit. uh when you when you think of a song like that's life from Eat em and Smile. Uh, oh, exactly. Yeah. Or Two Fools a Minute on Skyscraper. It's almost like he has a genre checklist. He's like, okay, did that. Don't need to do that again. Yeah, I mean, he, we know. <laughs> and the dance music anyway. And again, it gets back to not only influences, but you're right. They were doing covers of Casey and the Sunshine Band and... Yeah. 70s dance tracks which back in the very very early days uh when they were coming up in southern california so it just uh, the dance thing that he was so into uh and showing up at events or whatever a couple times a couple years ago just seemed i makes sense because he's been a big dance music fan but Something doing something along the lines of what Paul Stanley did now, doing that like say 10, 15, 20 years ago, would have made terrific sense from an artistic standpoint and probably would have been very well received. Good point. So he always tried new things, wasn't always super public about it, but uh, good for Paul. You know, I was just complimenting Diamond Dave. Good for Paul for um, embracing. Con, this kind of music rather than doing a really bad duets album or a really bad uh, hip hop reinvention. We we saw that Ozzy Osbourne Busta Rhymes Iron Man remake. We <clears> saw <throat> Ozzy Osbourne redo Crazy Train with Lil Jon. Um, certain contemporaries of Paul Stanley have just tried to reinvent themselves in a bad way. Oh, yeah. Ozzy with um, Post Malone a few times. Now. Yeah. And certainly the. the uh, uh, Outside of, say, perhaps Ace Freely, who's done, I think, what is it, two or three covers albums now, yeah. uh, there's some surprises on on most of those. But for the most part, the whole cover, there's like Ozzy's cover album was just about unlistenable. And so bravo for Paul for taking a risk and not doing. For me, uh, I got to interrupt. Bravo to Paul for making real music. Yes. He's got a full like 15 piece <laughs> band with amazing yeah. musicians. Um, and yeah, you could tell 
this was not a manufactured thing. You can tell listening to this that that passion is there. And I and yeah, sure, those are his roots. And remember, this is a guy also who he is a painter. He did Phantom of the Opera. So, you know, the Folgers commercial. The, yes, the Folgers commercial too. So, and he did a couple solo records as well. So, I mean, yeah. he's not good. For, good for him for not want for branching out and wanting to do different things. I think his heart was in the right place. I listen. I love that song. I O I. It fits with uh, the sound of that. The spinners and other and you know, yeah. it really makes it his own. It would have been really cool to hear this though when Paul's voice was was better and stronger 15, 20 years ago. But I think his voice sounds cool on this. But I could imagine maybe it could have been uh, could have been better and certainly different uh, when he was younger by a decade or two. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, like Dave, Dave News hit. I don't know if I'm preemptively interrupting you here, but did you see that Michael Anthony had said that he was trying to do the Vegas Uh, appearance or two with with Dave, which had been rumored when I was there at for two of the shows. People going, yeah, here, Michael Anthony is going to be here. So I guess there were rumblings internally with that. But was it that just like Dave never got back to him or is it a scheduling thing? Um, you know, I listened to Michael on a podcast and I think it was just more basically a scheduling thing. He had something with the circle. I don't think I don't think Michael ever actually showed up at a show no. or reached out to management a week ahead of time. It didn't sound like that. I think it was. Yeah. When I get I want to go see it when I get there, maybe I'll I'll check it out. And there is not a nicer person and a more humble person on the planet than Michael Anthony, considering, as we know from other books, that he really got crapped upon by that organization, including Dave. Let's be frank. If you if if the stuff in the Noel Monk book is true, which I believe it to be because Noel Monk lived it sober, you know, for for 20 plus years or whatever. Um, And above them, I think among them all, Michael is just he totally respects uh, the legacy and really just. It knows it's hey, let's if we can do it, let's give the fans something. Yeah, Michael Anthony, most of those bands had one guy that was like, Yeah, I'll do it. You know, like we didn't tell you what it is. Yeah, sure. Sounds yeah, fun. Right, right. <laughs> like in, in Motley Crue, that seems to be Mick Mars. You never hear one bad thing about Mick Mars ever. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, he was there. He remembers it. I was just thinking of him. Yeah. It, it's uh, yeah, it um uh I did. I made a note to actually talk about that because one other thing. This was on a, uh, the Jeremy White podcast, so mm-hmm. props to where we got this from. But he m- did mention that he was going to join Dave on stage. But Jeremy said to him, and Michael didn't know this, and you can attest to this, I'm sure, that Dave's backing vocals on the Kiss tour were actually Michael Anthony's on tape, and Michael didn't know that. And he joked, he's like, "I should be getting paid for that," but Michael was yeah. like, "What?" And those backup vocals sounded really crisp I saw the show. I don't know if I said this on the podcast. I, if, if not, I don't know you're one of the three people I told this anecdote to. So it's not like I tell this one to everybody. But at the second Roth show that I saw in Vegas, I spotted Jordan Ziff, who plays in Rat. He does like the Warren Demartini part in Rat, and he played with mm-hmm. Marty. Friedman, he's really like the next generation of guitar god in training if he does cool stuff. And I spotted him. I'm excited. Huge Rat fan. And Me I, too. <laughs> I didn't to be mobbing him. It's just like my wife and I were cornering him and no one else was bothering him. So 
I was, uh, you know, maybe I'll get a photo. I'll talk his ear off a little bit. And I'm like running out of things to say because I'm tired. Had a few drinks with me. And I'm like, so those backing vocals uh, sounded really tight. Were they pre-recorded? And he goes, you think? Like, oh. uh, you did t- you did tell this, com- yeah, you've told me this anecdote uh, on and off mic. It is on one of the earlier episodes. But which but what did not occur, occur to me at all and was that, and I don't know where uh, this guy's podcast, Jeremy White's podcast, which is pretty cool. He didn't allude to, at least on this segment I heard, where he heard this from. Yeah. But he was straight up. He said, yeah, those are your back, background vocals. And I, that just made me feel weird, man. I, I hope I, it's one thing to, OK, we're going to use some backing tapes there. It's another thing to say, OK, we're going to we're going to lift this right from these Van Halen recordings. Yeah. But where in the world, how in the world did Dave do that? Did that? Did he get the mass? Tech, technically, technologically, so to speak, is there a way to pull that off of? Uh, yeah. Pull that off of a CD or something, you know? Yeah, th- there is. Cause um, do you remember the video game Rock Band and all of its craze? Yeah, of course, like, of course, yeah. There, there were all these companies that were coming to me in my day job for an artist manager, going, "Hey, uh, we can make multi tracks of your songs just for Rock Band and all that, because these downloads of Rock Band are the." future millions of dollars are going to be made in this right so they there's some like over-the-counter software that just separates the tracks the best that they can so everyday people can do that kind of stuff so if ever you know how they say like uh there's there's sports medicine and then there's military government medicine and then there's rich people medicine and then there's what you and i can get i'm sure the same <laughs> thing right right yeah it's uh the whole thing just i was like whoa that perked my ears up a bit and i made a notice like oh man i gotta we gotta talk about this on the next episode of the dlr cast yeah so apologies for all the conspiracy theories uh all the uh the negative vibes that i've given i try to give facts along with the negative stuff you you were you were saying before no one likes michael anthony you know i sorry let me say that no one's nicer than michael anthony i'm gonna say steve roth is nicer than michael anthony but 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 the key is he is few people uh, are more likable than than Mr. Sobolewski himself. No, he he just always rose above that, and to a degree, I think uh, he just always rose above it. I mean, it's it's difficult to talk about how Eddie treated Michael Anthony even before he died, when Eddie really cleaned up, and there was no mudslinging from the reunion on. When you think of it, but it was pretty ugly, and it wasn't just you know it wasn't just against Dave. I mean, remember there was an accusation that uh, that. Uh, Eddie uh, recorded all the bass parts, or you know, had to or had to play, show Michael a video on how uh, record. You know, you know what rumor yeah. I'm talking about? And I don't even remi- remember Michael even if anybody stuck a mic in front of his face. Uh, how do you respond to that? Or was questioned about? I cert- there was nothing newsworthy from him saying he's full of shit and I could or dropping dirt on this. He just was always rose above it and. Yeah, man. You know, it's like you hate to just get that uncomfortable feeling about your heroes and people you've loved forever. And so that's why that's why I so appreciate uh, Michael, not just as a musician, but just as 
a fan of fans and getting it. He's and to a degree, Sammy is like that too. I think, although he certainly has thrown an amount of mud. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all, man. I mean, yeah. just be above it all. I think it speaks with Michael Anthony to the long-term relationships he's had. So same wife all those years. Uh, maybe he was out of Van Halen per se, but working with Sammy nonstop. Yeah. 86. <laughs> yeah. He's um, a loyal guy and he's doing what he loves to do. So God bless him. His hot sauce company still going. Yeah. There's a lot of people. Uh, oh, do I want to say his name? I won't say his name. There, there's certain people that are, quote unquote, entrepreneurs in rock and roll, where every time you hear a business venture or an album, they say it's coming soon. You go, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> happening. That's not true. There's it, there's going to be a statement about it shutting down, whatever. You know, Michael Anthony's just not that guy. So credit to him. Totally. Totally. All right. Let's get to let, let's get to the interview. This week's interview, and it's with Tom Bajor, Bajor, author of this amazing new book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. The I, You guys, he dropped some Dave, uh, Dave thoughts, Van Halen thoughts I thought were really interesting. Let's not tease it all or give it away, but uh, one thing that I caught my ear in the interview was the fact is how many people referenced uh, Dave – and I think that he mentioned that in his interviews and talking to people, they talked about Dave more than Eddie. Yeah. As far as who he talked to for the book, right? Did I get that right? Yeah. I mean, Dave was a fresh part of this book. It's, it is annoying when people talk about the 80s hair bands and anybody ignorantly says Van Halen per se. But all that scene happened because of Van Halen. The book kind of opens without spoiling too much. The book basically opens talking about Van Halen and the roots of Dokken, which not everybody realizes that George Lynch is a contemporary of Eddie yes. Van Halen rather than a copycat. Right, right. He was they're close to the same age, I think, and they were playing club. They were playing the same clubs. It was yeah, people think that. Uh, was influenced or was younger, but he's not. I mean, he was right up there as a as a contemporary, and I guess you can say a guitar rival at the same time period. Um, and it gets back to something I've said before on this podcast, and I've always thought I have never in my head lumped Van Halen in with the hair metal folks because they broke before that, right. and they just their music their music was just beyond that i just never i thought of them as an amazing hard rock band whereas and i say this i, I to me it's all hard rock anyway i mean i thought sometimes the hair the hair band thing was derogatory poison a hair metal band absolutely uh, to a you know rat motley crew sure you can say that but there was folks that chased that stuff but it was much more of a lame descriptor than anything else to, and sometimes the music fit that with the chain gang vocals and the Eddie wannabe guitars. But I, a lot of those bands cut their own path like a faster pussycat it, it, rat to me. And I always liked them more. Um, sound is nowhere near in sound compared to say the likes of warrant or Motley Crue or some of these other bands, or even the bands that didn't make it right. The also rands that never made it, which um, were a big part of this. Uh, Warren, I'm a huge defender of because there's songs like I Saw Red and Uncle Tom's Cabin that are just much deeper. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. To me, they were a hard rock band. Yeah, and uh, Bo Hill plays a, a role in a lot of those kinds of bands. You know, great producer behind the scenes. But yeah, this book, which was written by Tom and Richard Bean, is it Bienstock or Beanstock? Richard Beanstock. Yeah, guitar world writer for editor for years. Yep. Yeah, they, they too have interviewed everybody that you yeah. could think of over the years, which we get into a little bit with Tom. Uh, I, I, it's such a well-researched book. I can't imagine how overwhelming it was to do all these interviews and get them into concise kind of thing. Cause you know, some of these people were definitely ramblers or remembered things differently than other people. So it definitely breaks some ground of stories that we've never heard before. Definitely clears up some myths. And as I said, when it opens up with the parts about Dokken, I don't think most people realize that the members of Dokken were in bands before Dokken. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you, your interview with him is great. I think everybody's going to enjoy listening to it. Uh, it's the conversation that where it's one of those interviews and conversations where if you're a fan of this stuff, you're just you're, you feel like you're there and you're just like, oh, man, I wish I was in this conversation. And certainly the book is getting fantastic reviews. Yeah. And uh, and it's gotten some incredible endorsements, too. I mean, uh, Stephen, Stephen Pearce mentions uh, Stephen, Stephen Pearce's quote was, what do you say about it? Uh, if you want to relive the explosive decade, this is as close as you're going to get all right here, right now. Uh, Brett Michaels gave it a great endorsement. He says a backstage pass to the wildest, loudest party in rock history. You'll feel like you were right there with us. And yeah, it's I think if you're a fan of hard rock and that material, it is a definitive book that you have to have for your library. And it has an anecdote about tough in there, which uh, Tom <laughs> references during the interview. And I think the key is you don't just get the A-list bands. You get everybody's perspective if they were willing to go on record. And and Tom and Rich got a rare, rare interview from Vito Brada from, from White Lion. Yes, that's <laughs> amazing. He has not – who has he spoken to the last 30 years? Maybe Eddie Trunk? Eddie Trunk. And that's this is about it. I can think of. And so, you know, prepare to learn a little bit and also dig into the other projects that, that Tom and Richard have going on, because, you know, let's face it, they're they're uh, they're they're one of us. Yeah. And Tom is in a band with is a comedian, Dave Hill, yeah. uh, which has one of the comedian and musician, Dave Hill, uh, who they're one of the greatest band name ever band names ever, which taint, which I just that is unbelievably fantastic. But uh, well, let's before we get to the interview, let's just leave one more endorsement here. And that's from Dave Hill. He says an extremely well-written, thoughtful and indeed inspiring expose on one of the most misunderstood musical genres in history. Come for Yngwie Momstein, stay for Gunnar Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I say, by the way, I've interviewed both Gunnar and Ingve, and Ingve was a nightmare and Gunnar was one of the nicest people on earth. So I, I totally believe that. Let's get to it. As always, thank you for downloading and streaming the DLR cast. Hope you had, if you had half as much enjoyment listening to this as we had doing it, well, then we'll consider that a victory. Yeah, thanks. What he said. <laughs> Thank you for making the time. Oh, absolutely. Fan. A lot of people say longtime fan, but I had the pleasure of interviewing you. I, I'm going to say about 17 years ago about the band True Love. So that's how long it's wow. been. And wow. And that all leads into this book. When I interviewed you about True Love, you had talked about how when you were going to high school, 
you had a tape that you listened to sometimes that had one side of it, uh, Husker Du, and the other side had Look What the Cat Dragged In by Poison. I don't remember Correct. exactly how that came up, but when did you notice that it was okay to start being outward about your love of Poison and Rad and all, in my opinion, the greats? Um, I was always okay. Ba basically, I went to sort of a, 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 a prep school in, in New York City. And um, so, whereas if I had been growing up somewhere in the heartland or in a lot of America, listening to glam metal would have been like what everybody was doing. Mm -hmm. um, in my school, no one really listened to this stuff. So it was sort of my like it was funny when I was in eighth grade and ninth grade I was like the punk rock kid and I even like played CBs and stuff but then my way of differentiating myself I think in high school was being like the hair metal kid you know and it was part of like embracing a sort of an otherness and an identity that like was um sort of not you know I didn't listen to the Grateful Dead and I didn't listen to a lot right. of and I even had a fanzine um with my friend Ethan Smith who's now He's gone on to actually great. He's like the bureau, LA bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal now. But we had a we had a fanzine called Hot Rocks with two T's and two X's with umlauts over both O's. Um, that had CC <laughs> Deville on the cover. So we were like pretty into this stuff, you know. Um, and again, like concurrently, absolutely with you know listening to the replacements and REM and Husker Du and. Um, the, the other thing I always say is that one of the reasons I was so deeply into this music is that I was a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And so for guitar, you know, um, that, that era was a golden era of guitar. You know what I mean? Like that was like between, you know, Nuno Betancourt and Reb Beach and George Lynch. And I, I mean, I love CC DeVille. He probably wasn't technically the most, you know, um, proficient, but whatever I love his playing Vito Brada. Like there was, su there was such a wealth of great guitar music happening and probably one of the few times um maybe the only time but at least one of the few times in the history of popular music where like virtuosity has been allowed to fit in with pop music yeah you know what i mean like you've got red beach on headed for a heartbreak playing like this huge solo at the end of it and like that's yeah. unusual in a hit like an actual hit song yeah, so it was a it was, so as a guitar player, it was also that that completely sucked me in. Well, the name that you just brought up, CC Deville. Around the same time that I did that interview with you, I did my second or third interview with CC Deville, and I recently digitized it. And I was listening back, and I asked the great, always amazing question of who his influences are, and right. he actually was saying Robert Fripp and saying all these obscure things that you would never expect which always led me to wonder is cc deville a performance art guy like it's totally a character along the lines of professional wrestling and he's playing a glam metal guy because there's always that story that he told on that vh1 thing or mtv thing that he took classes under yitzcock perlman mm. <laughs> and he was a violinist it's possible i mean i would say were those like interviews? Because that's the only time I ever got him was when he was doing the Samantha Seven record. Yes, yeah, exactly so, when it yeah. was. Um, I have one, one interview tape from back then too, and that's it. Like he's hard to, he's hard to to reach. I would say it's possible. Um, I think given the amount of abuse that CC 
DeVille has taken for his playing that if he actually could come out and demonstrate that he could just destroy everybody, he would have, he would have done his unveil. Do you know what I mean? Like he would, he would have just come out and just crushed everybody. Like if he had that under the hood, um, that said though, I think one of the secrets of CC DeVille and what made poison, I, I, you know, in a lot of ways, um, superior is I think that CC DeVille was a cool guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he knew what Johnny Thunders was and he probably knew what television was. And he probably, you know, had listened to st- spent a lot of time learning Steve Jones licks from the pistols. And like he, I think he brought that aesthetic with him. So like, I think probably he might, he probably did spend time listening to Crimson and like weird stuff. Like I, you know, he probably, he's probably like one of the few, maybe he had a Richard Thompson record. Like who knows? He, I think he brought a lot of information with him that he then synthesized into, you know, like he probably knew like Brian James from the dam. Like he probably, like he probably had that all in his, in his mind, you know, and a couple of other people of that era also, I mean, you know, Izzy Stradlin certainly had all this information too, and probably Slash and Duff McKagan. There's a couple guys who have, who bring with them to this world, not just Kiss and Priest and, and, and stuff like that. They're also bringing, you know, underground stuff with them. So I, don't, but I don't know if he has like under, I don't know if he's been like exhibiting total, um, willpower for 40 years of not you know i've seen them live a lot recently i mean not recently like two years ago i saw them and i've seen them before and he plays great is he great he plays great but like you know and i i often say and i'm not kidding that cc deville is my spirit animal like there's something about him that i find totally just awesome in every way but like you know there seems to be let's just say there seems to be a distance between that and like nuno betancourt that has like that yeah is still pretty uh considerable fair well (laughs) love the book totally love the book it is exactly the kind of book i needed the dedication that you have to your wife in there about listening to hair nation (laughs) kind of happens at home here i i every now and then get that oh more david lee roth you know (laughs) kind of get that and the book opens with van halen and within 15 pages i think there's information that people who are Van Halen diehards may not have known. Like, um, was it the name Daddy Longlegs? Was yes. almost the band name? Yes, that was the name that Gene Simmons wanted to turn turn Van Halen into. Like, you know, he had and he says in there too. I think it's in, in that he had like a, a whole drawing done, or maybe Michael Anthony from Van Halen's in it. And a whole drawing done for the logo of Daddy Longlegs, which was like a spider with a top hat and like boots on each foot. Uh, you know, there are a lot of cr- sort of forks in the road that one takes in life. And if one takes the wrong one, things don't end up well. And it's very good that Van Halen did not take that fork. Um, that would be correct. Yeah. And we, we, we also see within a couple of pages, not spoiling the book for anybody, uh, David Lee Roth talking about Bill Gazzari showing him some quality homemade movies. Yes. To say the least. What era was that interview or was that a modern interview with Roth that you did? No, that was actually, that's pulled. I have to confess that's pulled. Um, my co-writer, Rich Beanstalk mm-hmm. recently, actually, if you look it up, he interviewed um, 
Roth a couple times, predominantly about Roth's like new artwork. But um, that's from, I think that's from his book. I think I pulled that from his book, man. I think, you know, David Lee Roth put out a book, but it's so long ago now. It was like 94. Yeah, it's amazing. But like, it's not like it's been around, you know? So it's like that, you know, and I just, we needed a couple quotes from him. You know, you're not going to go to David Lee Roth and get him to talk about Van Halen. It's not what he's interested in talking about right now, particularly for a book, um, that's not about Van Halen. But I mean, I think, um, you know, we were really lucky, like all the Michael Anthony stuff, we got Michael Anthony for the book. Um, but yes, yeah, so that was, I mean, so that was from, that was from them, and, but it's kind of like all corroborated by everyone else who talks about guitars, like that that was sort of the, uh, that that was the sort of um, thing that went on there, <laughs> that there was yeah, videotape. I don't think he was hamming up for decline of Western civilization too. I think that really was what it was like, even toned down. Yeah, probably. You know, I mean, it seems like that time on the strip really was um, a very like liberated and party time. I mean, like we've got this, we, we tried to like not get super gratuitous all the time in the book because, um, it can be fatiguing and, and, and sort of like also like probably we didn't have the stomach to go there. But there's this one story and this is much later in the timeline, but in like 1990 where uh, Stevie Rochelle, the singer from Tough, yeah. moves to L.A. And the first day he's in L.A., he's like at the whiskey, starts talking to some girl in, in there who's from Alaska. Three minutes later, like they're behind the dumpster outside of there having sex. And then they go back into the club and never talk to each other again. And we put that in not really as like this isolated prurient incident, but because it really, like if you extrapolate that into a million different nights and a million different encounters, I think that that's kind of probably what the vibe was back then. You know, I think it really was like people were just hooking up and getting totally hammered and, and just partying. And I think it was actually sort of oddly magical time in that way. If that was how, if that was how you were wired, you know? Yeah. I people, think, go ahead. Oh, I cut you off there with, because I was going to give you another compliment, which is that the book is helping people learn about and or remember a lot of people whose legacies kind of got shortchanged that if, if we were going to say, you know, what are the 10 most famous bands from the strip? You know, you'll probably say, well, Van Halen, Motley Crue, Rat, etc. And you won't talk about say the boys, but right. the boys who factor very early into the book, that's half of docking right there. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how attainable Van Halen was to all these bands in the late 70s, early 80s. It's not like Van Halen was on this pedestal and nobody could see them without talking to the security guard. All of them are just still hanging out with Van Halen casually, even at the peak of, of the Roth era. I mean, what you really discover, and we kind of learned this doing the book, is that, that the first wave of successful bands, so you're talking about Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, you know, um, and with them Van Halen, are all 70s bands that get signed in the 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, so George, you talk to anyone who was around at that time, they will say like the hot guitar players in LA in 1977 were George Lynch, Randy Rhodes, and Eddie Van Halen. Like they were all 
George Lynch was already there. Yeah. And, you know, so they're all um, hanging out together and going to each other's shows. That what happens though is um, Van Halen gets signed mm-hmm. and nobody else does. So it takes everybody else five years to get signed or four years to get signed. Um, because what was really happening then, and this is something we also learned during the book, is like nobody wanted these bands. People wanted Elvis Costello. They wanted the Knack, the Go-Go's. You look at even there's a, we had, I've seen a whiskey flyer from that era that's like the Go-Go's, X, the Germs, blah, blah, blah. And then like one night is Quiet Riot. Like these bands were on the outs um, and labels didn't want to touch them. And right. it's interesting in um, in Ted Templeman's book, um, w- the, who produced all the Van Halen records, he talks about going to see Van Halen with Mo Austin from from Warner Brothers Records, and how they weren't signing; they were signing Eddie Van Halen. Like Ted Templeman goes to see Van Halen, he's like, "I knew I had to sign this guy." Yeah, he was as good as, and he literally says, "Like he was as good as Coltrane." I'd seen Coltrane; like he was like just that mega level Jeff Beck. And they were like, we're, Warner Brothers is signing. We're not losing this, this Eddie Van Halen guy. They weren't so sure about the band. They, you know, they weren't so sure about David Lee Roth, Ted Templeman early on, even is thinking like, maybe I can get that Sammy Hagar from Montrose. The point being that when Warner Brothers signs Van Halen, they're signing like this great instrumentalist. And, and then the band happens to create the template for this whole music, but they weren't looking for bands like that. So all these other bands suddenly are like, wait, Van Halen got signed. Why aren't we getting signed? Like the boys, you know, like the guys in, you know, um, London. Right. <laughs> and they're just like, why aren't we getting signed too? Look, Van Halen's selling records. And it's because really Van Halen weren't signed as part of this movement, even though they're grand zero, ground zero for it. They're an, they're like an outlier that happens to have this effect, right. but like, you know, all those other guys were around back then. Like they, you know, and same with Twisted Sister on the on the East Coast. They're working since the mid seventies. That whole first wave of bands that, you know, breaks, th- and even Nikki Six late seventies is already in LA. So that whole first wave of bands that breaks through after Quiet Riot, Come On, Feel The Noise have been plying their trade for years. And they're really seventies bands. You know, yeah. that somehow great observation. Yeah. Get a deal in 1981. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, put, putting that all together, that introductory, uh, introductory, why can't I speak today? Introductory, usually not a big word that I struggle with. Part of the book, it has the great Gene Simmons quote about how when he saw Van Halen and he said, and that, you know, Roth is kind of this Jim Dandy copy. And that's something that I've heard him say, I've heard Dave Mustaine say that a couple of months ago when I interviewed him. Did you have other people make the Jim Dandy comparison when Roth came up? Not really. You know, it's funny. I actually, we were interviewed by someone yesterday who had interviewed Jim Dandy and brought up Roth to him. And Jim Dandy sort of like was very graciously said like, um, you know what everybody takes from, from like, uh, their people. I think if Roth, I mean, Roth actually does have long blonde hair. If he had had curly hair, probably people wouldn't have said that he was like Jim Dandy. I'm sure the influence is there, but really more what people said surprisingly in our book, um, everybody talks about Van Halen. Um, 
And it's interesting when Eddie Van Halen passed away in October, our publishers uh, sort of reached out and were like, do you need to mention this in the book? And, and we thought about it for a second. I will answer your question, but this, this, this speaks to it. <laughs> He's stalling. Um, <laughs> um, he asked us like, do you want to mention this in the book? And we said, you know, we don't really need to because even in 1981, people were referring to Van Halen as like these gods on Mount you know, Olympus. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that people, that most of the bands that we talked to keyed into is not Eddie, it's David Lee Roth as being you know, whether it's Stephen Piercy, like all these guys who talk, or even Brett Michaels and, and David Lee Roth, whether or not he borrowed aesthetics from Jim Dandy or what, you know, really was, became the template and became like, no one in this book doesn't acknowledge that he was the greatest front man. It's amazing. Like it's, it's, it's like a universal, Thing. everybody's just like we saw like Dave Dave was the best he was the best he was the best and it's like not there's no backhanded anything it was just like they were the best band and Dave was the best front man and it, and it comes up even more than Eddie's guitar playing actually yeah that is true again can't sell this book enough to anybody who loves these bands or loves historical time capsules, but you personally are right here. I consider you a tasteful, tasteful guitar player. Um, I don't know how much you put that out there because obviously you're a writer, editor, author, yet you can't go, and by the way, check out my new band. You know, you can't right, right. do that so much. But that does not happen. Unless you want the people you're interviewing to like try and claw their way through a wall or out a window. <laughs> I, I heard an amazing story. If you want, I can edit this out. I don't have to go into the details, but a story about you may be doing an impression of Eric Carmen. Oh, that was the bass player in my band. That was the, ba the bass player in my old band, Shake Appeal. He called, uh, he called, uh, what was Donnie Einer from, from Columbia and pretended to be Eric Carmen. And it was like, yeah, you got to hear this band, Shake Appeal. Um, that was one of the, I think New York Press did a story on it. That was a great moment in, in my uh, very, very, moderately successful music career was getting that story <laughs> and the fic I think the illustration of it in New York press was of our bass player Marcella with cement boots in the bottom of the, in the bottom of the like East River um, it makes sense but but good times good times but you as a musician did you follow David Lee Roth as a solo artist beyond Van Halen I saw definitely yeah I did I saw the um skyscraper tour okay which coincidentally uh poison opened yes you know at, at the time if you wanted to see a van halen concert you went to see david lee roth really because he was the one doing the songs right you know i saw the ou812 van halen tour and really they they did you really got me ain't talking about love maybe jump maybe i don't remember you know if you wanted to see on fire and 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 like other real van halen classics you went to see david lee roth so i saw that tour and i did follow him through i mean i know i bought a little ain't enough even i don't you know um i don't think that caught me as much but i think the first 
David Lee Roth solo. I mean, Eat Him and Smile is a, is, is a great Van Halen record, you know? And I think he really yeah. did. I mean, that was, and it's produced by Ted Templeman. So like, there really is a lot of common, you know, the DNA is all there, but like, um, I mean, he put together, like if you're, if you, that was a tough task. Like I've got to put together a band that like, can really live up to this to this like legacy and i think he did it um yeah i did follow roth through his through his solo career and i bought the records and i went to i remember i mean i that that skyscraper tour was great you know that was a really good show um and poison were great as an opening band um as well i remember i mean i was a fan but like like especially at that time, like poison in a 45 minute burst yeah, <laughs> was the ultimate like delivery format for them. Cause I saw them headline as well, where they were all doing solos and stuff like that. Yes. And I, it wasn't, it wasn't like it's tight, like poison as an opening, like the main support band just coming out and blasting for 45 minutes when they had all these hits, you know, already was like, Whoa, that, that was really good. It all comes back to poison, uh, for yeah. better and for worse. <laughs> now, you mentioned before getting to interview CC in the Samantha Seven era, which I also did. I also got to interview Roth in that era because he was talking to everybody. Did you get a 2003, 2004 Roth interview? I never interviewed Roth. You know, I never, I've interviewed Eddie a couple times. I've been to 5150 and done all that, but I've never, I actually honestly would have been so terrified to interview Roth only because I would unless I had gotten a, a an assignment that was like you can interview Roth and we'll print whatever he talks about <laughs> but like if not like I did the thought of trying to um and I do think I you know I nobody's probably ever tested maybe they have I think like probably David Lee Roth has like a like a 162 IQ like that dude is like wickedly smart but he's you know He's trying to keep him on track. Yeah. Like if you wanted to get an assignment to be like, I would like David Lee Roth to pick his 10 favorite all-time records. There's no, there's zero chance that you're getting on the phone with him. Even if it was like, can he pick his three favorite records? You will not get off the, you will be on the phone for 80 minutes, but I don't think you're going to get those answers. You'll probably get something else amazing um, about like, you know, some kind of music that's only in this small part of the rainforest and this that the other, but you're not going to get what you came for. So I was always afraid to interview him because like, I don't know if I wasn't like, I wanted to talk to him, but I didn't know if I could deliver what an editor wanted from it. Yes. Good answer. <laughs> good answer. I think I'm going to put out the audio of that in the next couple of months. Uh, I was a terrible 20 year old interviewer, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, but my last, uh, before I ask my, my last question for you, uh, Hearing Aid, uh, has there been a better charity all-star recording ever than Hearing Aid? Oh, wow. You know, we didn't get into that in the book, oddly, because I don't know why we didn't. We had to pick something. Um, like, I think it would have been that or the Russia thing, and we went Russia. Yeah. Um, Hearing Aid is pretty awesome and like the visuals of the the video is just like the bat you know yes. the, absolutely 
because it's also weird seeing people like in an like a mildly dressed down context. I remember at the time not being fully prepared to not see these guys in full warrior mode. Like I, I think it unbalanced me a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a there's this other one that you need to research, which is like all the Swedish. There's a bunch of Swedish. Oh yeah, with Joey. Tech. That may yeah. huh? With Joey Tech yeah. from Europe. That yeah. might be the greatest. That might be the greatest, uh, yeah, like hair metal group charity thing of all time. What is that called? That is like it's that lend a helping hand, lend a helping hand. That is fully like fully epic as well. Um, you know, it's funny. It's it, it brings us to the point. It's like it, it was a hard. It, like there was there was a lot of bombast, and it was like a weird. It's a hard. It would have been hard for anyone in that era to like do any like I, even if they had done somebody had done something completely serious would they have been allowed to do it without uh, disdain I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah. My last question um, this is putting you on on the spot though, but it's a it's a compliment. Who is the nicest person that you spoke to for this book, and was it Rudy Sarzo? Rudy Sarzo was spoken to by my co-author Richard Beanstalk, and he is incredibly nice. Um, for me, the nicest person I spoke to, and the most surprising, because and it was also the most exciting, was Vito Brada from White oh, Lion. Yeah, because like I, I've said this jokingly, but it's kind of true. Like maybe it's possible. I would need some deep analysis for this, but um that this whole book was a pretext just to try and interview him, you know? Um, but he was like wonderfully candid um, and, and hilarious. Like it, I, I have to say, and this is it. So he was like my sort of maybe my, like, cause I was the most thrilled that he was nice. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But I have to say, and this is not me avoiding your question, and and Rich, my co-writer, would um, concur on this. And this is something I've actually found through my years as a music journalist. Metal guys and ladies, metal people, hard rock people, <laughs> metal people, metal That's are generally project. yes, metal. are generally the nicest yes people to interview. Like I, you know, I started at Guitar World in nineteen ninety four. Um, and it was rough, man. Like there was this era where it was like, not like you just, like you were, there was a real era where it, like, it seemed like people were supposed to not care, you know? And it was like, you had to pull teeth to get good answers. And, you know, and, and, and like the, everyone we spoke to for this book was incredibly gracious and nice. And particularly once they realized that like we were not going to ask them the five questions that they always get asked and that we weren't dismissive that we were fans that we were really serious about putting something together once you gained and then once they told their friends like you know one member of vixen tells the other member of vixen this guy's cool and he knows it's shit um and once it got rolling it was really a, a, an overwhelmingly positive experience there were really maybe 
one or two interviews where I got off the phone. I was like, fuck that guy. You know, and like, it was, it was, and that's out of like hundreds. You know? Yeah. Um, so everybody was incredibly nice. The person I most needed to be nice to fulfill and not shatter my childhood dreams was Vito Brada. And he was, you know, but like to a T, everybody was cool. The other like person who is incredibly nice and hilarious is Brian Forsyth of Kicks. Brian Damage Forsyth is like one of the funniest, nicest, and most unguarded people that you would ever um, talk to. And, and, you know, these people are talking about some difficult stuff sometimes, you know, like particularly when they're talking about their experiences in the early 90s, you know, like of like being completely sidelined. Um, yeah. And they were all great. So that was a, so Vito Brada, but actually everybody. <laughs> like seriously, every, people were just incredibly cool. I was going to put the runner up for, Rudy Sarzo is going to be Steve Brown from Trickster as the nicest human. He's awesome. I mean, he's my he's my friend. Like so, Steve Steve Brown is actually like we're friends. He um, so he was great to talk to. Um, but I actually have a ongoing relationship with him. So like it's that was an easier um, thing. He's awesome. He's hilarious. He's another one who's just like very clear-eyed and he's like you know we made our second record and i could have made it for one hundred fifty thousand dollars, but i wanted to make a big boy record you know and like and he knows that like he, you know and he'll be like we spent way too much money he's very clear-eyed and not bitter and just like an awesome all-around dude um exactly yeah, somebody like who like i text with like we text each other pictures of guitars and stuff um so yeah because he's he's right up the road in 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 like you know, he's like 30 minutes up Route 17 in Jersey. So he's a local, he's a local guy. The texting photos of guitars explains why you're friends with Steve Schiltz. So that brings yes. everything full circle. Yes. yes, that's like, that is basically what I do most of the time. Like, especially when I'm supposed to be working on a book is like, I'm <laughs> looking at guitars online or texting. Yeah. Like I have a, I'm in a couple bands now. Uh, with the comedian Dave Hill. Who, oh yeah. So I'm in which I'm in Witch Taint with him, like this comedy black metal band. Yes. Uh, as Tomai Guillotine, and I'm also in the band Painted Doll with him. It's, they're they're both on TP Records, and I, and and I've worked on I produced the Painted Doll record, blah blah blah. But literally, what we do to each other all day is like I'll find a guitar online and I'll text him and be like, "Dude, should I get this?" And we both always just answer to the other one, like, do it, buy the guitar. And we just try, we just try and like make each other buy guitars that we don't need. Um, and I tell, actually, I tell all my friends, if you ever ask me if you should buy something, I will do it because I need you to buy guitars to like exculpate me from doing so. But it's a lot, there's a lot of guitar texting. <laughs> well, Hence, it could be worse, I'm sure. It could be much worse, but I think that makes anything related to this book research, therefore, a tax write-off. So congratulations for the smartest <laughs> move you could ever uh, have made as a guitar collector. So That's true. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time, Tom. Looking forward to the new music and all that, and just keep up the greatness there. Thank you, and likewise, thank you so much for um, taking interest 
now and at the dawn of time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nothing right. but a good time is the book. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you.